Hello and welcome to Base Camp, a climbing magazine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Riley. Thank you for tuning in. This is the Epic Issue Preview. We're going to kick things off by talking with Climbing Magazine's editor-in-chief, Matt Samet, about Epic. What is an Epic? Has he ever epic He sure has. He tells a story about a time he went soloing up in the Flatirons. Things went bad real quick. Then we're going to talk with James Lucas about his article, Animal Farm, about bringing your pets to the crag. When is it okay? Is it okay? Is it never okay? So we talked to James about that. Finally going to speak with Elena Arenz, who was briefly featured in the article Freedom of the Hills by Alana Newman, and talk to her about being a female guide in a male-dominated industry. It's a packed episode. think you're going to really enjoy it. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Tired of the same old lifestyle climbing shoe? Time to check out the Evolve Rebel, winner of Climbing's Editor's Choice Award. It has a lightweight feel and water repellent upper, a cushioned midsole coupled with a rubber toe cap for durability, and heel side reinforcement for stability. But don't take my word for it. Hear what these climbers have to say. And have you seen the new Evolve Rebel? I have, yeah. What do you think? They're sick. I love them. They look cool. They look steezy for sure. <laughs> I just got a pair in the mail, yeah. What do you think? I love them. I think they're awesome. They're like, you know, crack of the club type deal. Have you seen the new Evolve Rebel? Uh, no, not yet. They look cool. They're light. These are nice. Yeah, looks pretty good. Like, solid, comfortable, all-day wearing shoe. The Evolve Rebel, available now at REI and REI.com. All right, here with Matt Samet, and we're here for a preview of Climbing's June-July issue, the Epic issue, which is going to be going on sale May 15th. And before we start talking um, about some of the articles and features within the issue, I'd really love to nail down what Epic is. Because I always think of an Epic as being something that's long and arduous, not necessarily dangerous. But you always hear Epic use synonymously as dangerous. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Oh, I think you're sort of you're saying that people are sort of conflating the term, right? That yeah. They're using it to mean something that's really dangerous or gnarly when in fact it should mean something that just sort of goes on and on forever. But they're not mutually exclusive, right? No, 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 definitely not. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think of the origins of the word, right? An epic poem is something like the Iliad or the Odyssey that just goes on and on and mm-hmm. on and on. And maybe in climbing, it seems to me like the sense, a lot of these epics that people survive do go on forever because they get in these really bad situations that then take a long time to extricate themselves from. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if some of those connotations too have to do with just how long it feels like it's going on. I mean, you could have a 10 second epic. You could have yeah. the worst 10 seconds of your life if like a rappel anchor breaks. Yeah. That's, it would probably feel pretty epic and pretty long as you're like falling to the ground and you break your legs. Mm-hmm. But you know, in reality, it hasn't, that much time hasn't passed. So maybe that's it. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion. But it seems like in the climbing community, we sort of, at least in the literary sense, it's sort of come to signify a tale of a harrowing survival story that people survived. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not really epic if people die. It's tragic. And that, I guess, mm, I guess that's the fine line, right? It's a yeah. razor's edge. Like you almost die, but you didn't. It's epic something really bad goes wrong and people start dying, it's tragic. 
So mm. I think maybe that's more of the distinction that, that we tend to make as climbers. Yeah. So the issue is definitely packed with epic articles, epic features and, and departments. You know, we have Ileana Newman's details, the struggles and harassment that females have had to endure for years in the guiding community mm-hmm. that is mostly male dominated, right? And we have James Lucas recounting his uh, goal to climb for 50 days or more in the park mm-hmm. over one season. And Carl Tobin, you know, he delves into the massive fall and the epic conditions that he endured while climbing in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So we have this issue just packed full of these stories. But what I'm interested in is what is one of the epics that you've had to endure over the years? Do you have one that really stands out? Uh I mean, clearly I've survived them all, so none of them were too terribly tragic. Um, I mean, for someone who's climbed for whatever, three plus decades, I've been pretty lucky that nothing, knock on wood, super catastrophic has happened. Mm -hmm. I can certainly think of some, some near misses. I think probably the time that I came closest to being killed was free soloing uh-huh and i wrote about it for for was the, this back in slacks yeah back in slacks yeah i wrote about it for the for the website uh-huh. um but i think that was the time that i mean usually an epic happens because you're either out of control or events have gotten out of your control or both mm-hmm. and in that case you know i was out of control i think that's what happened i mean what i what i re- as i best recall this was probably the late 90s and i'd just gotten out of a like a five-year relationship. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I guess I was probably doing the standard like guy in his 20s, testosterone, you know, oh, angst soloing, oh, poor me. No <laughs> yeah. one will ever love me again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely not the first. Yeah, yeah, I didn't invent that at all. And I'm sure I won't be the last. No. And, you know, I'd gotten into this soloing kick, some in the Flatirons, a fair bit in Eldo. And a lot mm-hmm. of it was just kind of to be honest, it was really boneheaded shit. It was like onside soloing, like old five nines and five tens. That you know, I was like, oh, I, I can climb this grade. I can do it without a rope. Then in retrospect, these routes are actually pretty, pretty hard and pretty greasy, and they're often slabby and weird. And and so there was a lot of that going on in Eldo, where I would just sort of like squeak through these cruxes and be like, oh, that didn't feel very good. Mm-hmm. But you know. All the while, I was just sort of rationalizing, like, "Oh, that was only five nine plus. I can climb five nine plus." But these, you know, these aren't secure routes. But this one in particular, back and slacks, is like five eleven C, and I'd only done it once before, like in nineteen ninety two, I think. Mm-hmm. Something I'd had a long. No, I think I first probably did it in the nineteen eighties when I first came to Boulder, like eighty summer of eighty nine. Uh, it was one of the early sport routes. And I think I did it again like a few years later when I was living in Boulder. I was coming back after a long layoff from an injured finger and just did it once. And then like was in that soloing phase probably six, seven years later and then went up there and I was like, oh, I've done this thing a couple times. I'll just free solo it. Um, and it's kind of an innocuous, like it's like a four-bolt sport climb to like a pin to this finishing slab and you can down climb in this sort of gully off to the side. And I was like, I don't know. It's not that long, you know, I feel feel okay today. And I think I'd soloed some other short 5.11s down the hill, kind of up, this is up mm-hmm. on Dinosaur Mountain in the Flatirons where um, there's like a, a little collection of sport routes. But I really had just failed to account for the fact that I had only done the route twice in my life Hadn't been on it in probably six or seven years and really had like 
zero recollection of anything mm-hmm. other than the grade and the name. And so it, it sort of sucks you in with um, these good Wacos, and you can get up about 30, 35 feet, and they start to get a little further apart, and you're starting to do longer and longer reaches, and they start to sort of become the moves. You're like, huh, probably reverse that, maybe not. And you get up to this this sort of finishing bulge, and you're on this Waco, and there's these little crimps, and uh, I just remember... I don't know why I didn't down climb. That probably wasn't the smart thing to do. Yeah. Probably because I just... Maybe ego? Ego. Yeah, that's usually what... <laughs> that probably had something to do with it. Like, yeah, I'm not going to back down off this little piece of shit. Yeah. Uh, and I got up through the crimps. And you definitely... I mean, I'm sure a more skilled climber could reverse those. I didn't feel like I could. And I'd completely forgotten that the lip was the crux. It mm-hmm. rounds the lip of this little bulge, this kind of angular bulge. And there's this diagonaling seam. And you have to sort of... Get in balance and stab your fingers back into this little like pocket next to a piton. Uh-huh. And I got up there. No one had done the route in forever, and people weren't really climbing the flatters back then. And there's a tree above it, and it's all these pine needles had come down over the lip, and dust and pollen and shit. And I was up there just kind of like scraping holds and going back and forth, and eventually realized I was getting pumped. Yeah, and I basically stabbed like out of control barn dooring for this hold and caught it just as my uh, right hip and right foot were rotating away from the wall. And can you recollect like what you were thinking in that moment? I was thinking, get that hold. Yeah. That's it's all just I could it. think. Just finish it. Yeah. Just finish it. Like you've got yourself here. You've gotten yourself in a really bad situation. I was up there totally alone. No one knew where I was. I mean, so even if I'd survived the fall, you know, who knows? how long it would have taken to get help. Maybe if I hollered loud, loud enough, the trails of whatever, about a couple hundred yards away. But yeah, a lot of it was just like, you dumb, you dumbass. Like <laughs> you climbed up into the situation. You need to get yourself out of it. And, you know, like kind of panicking basically, mm-hmm. like did this move in like a semi-panicked, panic state. And it'd be the kind of thing where if you saw someone up, someone up there with the rope, you'd be like, yeah, it's 50-50 whether they're going to stick that move, you know, because their hips are coming away from the wall. And I stuck it. Yeah. You know, barely. I mean, barely. And I, I guess that would probably be the most epic moment I've had climbing because because there was a lack of, there was like, you know, there's all these kind of elements that go into an epic. And a lot of epics happen to people who are the best prepared climbers in the world, mm-hmm. but they go in the mountains and, and, and the weather goes south or there's an avalanche or someone takes a bad fall. This was an epic simply because of my own stupidity. There was mm-hmm. like lack of planning, one, ego, not backing down. And three, just not maintaining the control I should have for climbing without a rope. Yeah. And I, I think after that, I stopped soloing pretty much. Okay. At least, I think that was sort of the end of that little discrete phase of free soloing. I was like, oh, I've, I'm done. You know? Yeah. Like, this isn't for me. Uh, it just felt... It felt horrible. <laughs> it felt... You know when you're like a teenager and you're learning to drive and you're just... You're not totally in control of the car, mm-hmm. and you maybe you run a light and you almost hit someone, but you don't, and you realize that you maybe would have killed a family in a minivan. It would have been totally your fault. Yeah, it was that sort of feeling. It was like just this disgusting sort of slimy feeling. Like I don't really know what got me through this. I don't really know why I'm still alive. I probably don't deserve to be. Um, so stop free soloing. But you were still doing dangerous stuff after that. I imagine like. Um, front range freaks came out after this or was this before front range freaks? I think it was around that same time. Cause you were still doing pretty gnarly head pointing. 
uh-huh. you know, stuff where you had to make those moves. Maybe it was more calculated. It was much more calculated and rehearsed. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't know. I was just, I've actually been editing an article on head pointing all day today about the, the peak district. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, reading about kind of the shenanigans of these Brits and like a lot of the little anecdotes sort of ended up with, with it. And then so-and-so ended up in the hospital and you're like, oh, that's what happens. And, you know, and this is some of these guys were top roping and rehearsing. Some of them were just going for it, <laughs> you know, just taping on sky hooks and trying to lead these E7s and E8s ground up on site. Um, but yeah, I think any any climb I did after that was dangerous. I uh-huh. I put a lot more planning into it. Can we talk a little bit about the British head pointing? Because that just blows my mind that that's like their local crags. And Uh for them going out climbing and leading something is just almost always dangerous and death defying. I mean, what a horrible place to have to climb. (laughs) Your local crag is just all 512 and 513 death routes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess that's why they're so strong, maybe. That's why they spend all that time on their moon board in their cellars. (laughs) Because the only local crag isn't like a nice, friendly, warm sport crag. Yeah. It's like some heinous, you know, all these 35-foot routes with, like, one piece of shitty gear uh-huh. where you're just going to rip everything in deck and land on crash pads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, you know, I mean, well, the interesting part of this story, uh, it'll be out later this year, is is sort of the evolution of the acceptance of top roping. Mm-hmm. Because now it's definitely a thing. Like, head pointing is a known thing. The movie Hard Grit's been out for 20 years now. People sort of, there's this understanding now that if people are going to do these really dangerous leads, the option to top rope is there mm-hmm. and it's not going to be frowned upon. Whereas, you know, reading this article, like back 20, 30 years ago, people were still giving each other shit for it. Yeah. Like, oh, you top roped out too many times, mate. You know, it's no good. And it's like, well, fuck. Well, even here, I was just talking to Gary Neptune and he frowns upon head pointing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I, I would just say to each their own, right? Yeah, like, for sure. Like, whatever. If you want to go break your legs on site, <laughs> cool. If you don't want to and you want to top rope, I think that's fine, too. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, still an ethic that's very much alive and well on the gridstone because they've chosen not to place bolts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these routes would probably be perfectly safe little... I mean, they'd be little sport routes because they're not the longest things, but some of them some of them are like 50, 60 feet sure. tall. I mean, it's a legitimate sport climbing length. They'd probably be like five, six bolt sport routes where you're taking taking falls and just going for it and they'd be physically hard but as it is with no bolts yeah they're just these sort of nightmarish things that are kind of blending the line between highballing and free soloing and and god knows what but yeah i mean just reading this article like a lot of the people take these people have taken the falls and walked away unscathed people get hurt i don't know that anyone has necessarily died on these routes yet Mm -hmm. per se because it's usually very skilled climbers who are trying them you know who are doing their best to make sure they don't fall off. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's an epic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sharing, Matt. It's been good speaking with you and look forward to seeing the issue. And again, that's going to be out on May 15th. So make sure to check out your local gym, your local retailer or subscribe. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, thanks, Matt. All right. Well, let's keep it moving. Up next, we're going to be speaking with James Lucas about his article, Animal Farm. Enjoy. So I want to talk to you about your new article, Animal Farm. I believe the subtitle is like, Why Pets Don't Belong at the Craig Ever. Yep. So I'll start with a softball question. Why do you hate pets? Uh, I I don't hate pets. I love pets. Like uh, 
My girlfriend Nina has this uh, hedgehog named Frankie von Quillsbury, who is like absolutely adorable and curls up in a ball. My housemate has this dog, uh, a little Sheba with so much attitude named Amiko. She's great. I've been like trying to teach her how to crawl across the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're like great animals, but they don't belong at the crag. Yeah, why not? Uh, well, some of it comes down to irresponsible owners. Uh huh. Not that my, I wouldn't be like, oh, my girlfriend or my housemate are like irresponsible. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to take a pet outside where there's a lot of people around, you have to like really be aware of what it's doing all the time. You uh-huh. know? If it's barking while while someone else is climbing that's like a huge distraction that's one of my biggest pet peeves my like probably my main climbing partner he always brings his dog and his dog's really well behaved not aggressive Mm -hmm. but whenever there's another dog or people approaching he just barks yeah and it's super annoying especially Mm -hmm. when he's belaying me because Mm -hmm. it detracts from my climbing i'm always like looking down being like oh is he paying attention to me i always hear him being like talking to the people who Mm -hmm. are like walking up and i'm just get pissed right yeah (laughs) like you you don't want that you don't want like a dog or an animal like eating the food out of your pack um i mean you don't want it like you don't want pooping everywhere yeah i mean the poop thing doesn't really bother me as much you could always like put like a diaper on your dog or Or you can just uh, pick it up you can pick it up (laughs) (laughs) yeah a little while ago i saw uh brad gobright wrote this thing on on facebook he said if you're tired of uh people's dogs pooping at the crag here's a tip he's like cook bacon in the morning and save the grease to pour on the poop (laughs) (laughs) so all you need to do is like oh it's a saturday okay well, there's going to be dogs at the crag. You better, like, make sure you bring your bacon grease. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's just like one of those things where, like, <clears throat> you're someone's bringing a dog to, yeah. to the crag. And, um, like, it's good for the dog, but it affects everybody at the crag. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the owner or just the dog uh-huh. a lot of times. It's like... Okay, is the dog snarling at me? Like, did the dog bite me? I don't. Oh, friend. I love when they say that when they're like, the dog's barking at you, it's growling at you, and they're like, oh, it's friendly. Yeah, and it's friendly. Like, okay, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I guess I'll take your word for it. Or, or they go like, oh, oh, my, my dog usually isn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> like, no one's dog is ever like that. Yeah, they're all just like super nice all the time it's just it's you like oh my my dog doesn't like he's like fine with everybody except like tall people short people medium-sized people (laughs) anyone with chalk on their hands (laughs) they're they're like he's usually such like a model dog Mm -hmm. well here's the question for me though is like where do you draw the line you know, if you're asking dog owners, cat owners, whoever, the pet mm-hmm. owner, like, to make that decision, it's really hard as an owner to truly evaluate your own dog, right? You have, right. like, this huge emotional connection. Plus, I feel like most climbers don't want to bring their pets, but that would not allow them to go to the crag as right. often or as long, mm-hmm. and they feel guilty, so yeah. they make excuses of why they should bring their dog. 
I've seen dog owners who you can tell their dog doesn't even want to be there. Yeah. You know, and they're like, oh, he or she likes it. It's like, yeah. I don't think so, dude. <laughs> yeah. I think that your dog dog's like, miserable. just wants to go home and lie on a couch. It uh-huh. hates being here right now. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I guess he, the pet owner has to really evaluate, like, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times I think that bringing an animal to the crag ends up being more work than it's worth. Like, okay, you got to like think about food for the the pet. You got to get them in the car. You got to get them out of the car. You got to watch them. Like all those things that's like 30 or 40 minutes, right? Yeah. Of your, of your climbing experience mm-hmm. that's just like gone. And so it's like, well, is it better to not bring the dog and then just go home 30 minutes earlier? And then you're like more relaxed and everyone at the crag has a better experience. And you're not just thinking about you and your animal. You're thinking about the whole community. Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's also like some type of permit process mm. that pet owners could go through. Like here in Boulder, on the trails here, there's like a... I think it's like voice and sight permit. Oh, really? For dog owners. So you can actually get your dog a permit to be off leash. Mm. And you have to go to either like the OSMP or the police station mm. or some type of person who actually will watch the dog and see how well it uh, is obedient and stuff like that. And then you can get an annual permit so that you can bring your dog on the trail. Right. And it's an interesting idea. I wonder if that would work among climbers. Yeah, I I read this article in the New Yorker a little while ago about a a woman who looked into like uh, companion animals, uh-huh. and she she like brought a dog and like brought a dog into a movie theater, and then she's like, oh well, what about like a a snake? Like I need this my companion <laughs> snake. It's an emotional support animal, and so she brought the snake out dress shopping. Yeah, and she brought then she like decided to like. That like caused some people to get a little anxious, and yeah, and so then she was like, "Well, okay, I'll bring an ostrich," and she like <laughs> brought an ostrich like on the subway and stuff. It was just like her emotional support vehicle mm-hmm. or animal, and um, people didn't really, they were like really tiptoed around her. Yeah, but it's like, dude, what? Why the fuck do you have an ostrich? With and I, th- I think there's this like weird thing in our society where we're like almost deferential to, to people with animals, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure if that's like the best case. You know, in a lot of other countries, pets don't go outside. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, I was in Bishop recently, and we were hanging out at the, the Hulk, and one of my friends was playing with this dog a little bit, and he got bit oh by my- the dog. And the owner was like, oh, well, you shouldn't have been playing with the dog. (laughs) The dog has teeth. Like, he bites you. And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, there's like two people involved. Sure. It was like my friend and the dog. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, and the dog owner. That dog dog owner is liable for Mm -hmm. the dog. Yeah. And like... The, the dog owner was pretty much like, not my dog's fault, not my fault, <laughs> fault. your fault, yeah that like you got teeth sunk into your mm-hmm. finger. And it was like, oh, huh. And it ra- made me think like there's a, a lot of Japanese climbers 
and Bishop at the time. Yeah. And so I asked a few, a few of them like, Oh, do you guys ever see dogs at the crags? Because like in Bishop, they're like dogs darting across the tablelands and like pooping in the buttermilks and getting in fights and biting my friend. Yeah. And, uh, they're like, Oh, in our culture, pets stay at home. Uh huh. I kind of like that. I mean, I love dogs. Yeah. But it just dogs at the crag, like I'm there for one reason and it's yeah. the climb. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's that safety component that you talked about, but there's also like an environmental impact. I have noticed that dogs love to like dig little holes for themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And usually the owner's like, oh, he's being good, you know, yeah. he's happy. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if you have a dog going to that same area and just digging a hole next to a yeah. tree, which mm-hmm. is what they usually do, there's yeah. going to be a lot of exposed roots. You're mm-hmm. going to just so much environmental yeah. degradation. It's like climbers impact the environment enough. Yeah, exactly. We, we like, it's really important that we minimize our impact. And so it's like, okay, well, is like bringing something else that's going to impact this area really that great for access? Mm-hmm. Well, we've been ragging on pets for a while here. Yeah. <laughs> is there, do you think there's an upside to bringing pets to the crag? Uh, I mean, what's the flip side of this? I mean, we... <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I guess if you're like, you get stuck and you can't repel, maybe, yeah, maybe like... Mr. Peanut Butter can go run for help. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little lassie scenario there. Yeah, a little lassie. Yeah, I wonder if there's anyone out there who feels that bringing the, you know, their dog or pet to the crag actually makes them climb harder. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Emotional support. Yeah, uh uh-huh. They have like that, (laughs) they have their spirit animal right there. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well... It was a great read. I'm excited to see what type of feedback we get from our readers after that. I have a feeling you might be getting some uh, inbound emails. Yeah, Pettit's looking for me already. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, James. Thanks. Okay, it's time for our feature interview with Elena Arenz about being a female guide in a male-dominated industry. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Elena Arenz. And we're here in Las Vegas, where you are a guide, correct? Mm-hmm. And who do you good. guide for? I work for whoever will hire me. <laughs> <laughs> As any guide out there knows, you have to take the work from wherever you can get it. So there are a couple different guide services based here in Vegas, and mm-hmm. I pick up work from all of them. But by and large, most of my clients now are, are my private clients that I run through the local guide service here. Okay. But you also own your own guiding company, right? I do. I own a couple. A couple? Um, I only knew about the New River guides yes and new river mountain guides um is based at the new in west virginia and i've owned that um my goodness since 2002 Mm -hmm. and then four years ago i purchased uh chicks climbing and skiing and i'm a co-owner of that along with kitty calhoun angela haas and karen buckle awesome awesome and how did you get into guiding from the beginning well it's um it wasn't a plan that I ever like set out and said, I, w- I want to be a guide. It just uh-huh. kind of something that I fell into. Um, when I started climbing in Austin, Texas in college, I was working at the climbing gym and people would come in and want to um, learn to climb outside. And so I w- did a little bit of guiding on the side, just, you know, taking people's money, essentially, <laughs> taking the Rhymer's Ranch, uh, very informal. Uh-huh. And then um, after I graduated, I ended up spending a lot of time down in the Petrero Chico. Mm-hmm. And did the same down there. There were people down there on vacation, needed a partner, and they would hire me to guide them up things. 
So that's how it was kind of an informal start, totally okay. like pirate style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, when I left the Pachero and moved to the new, uh-huh. um, my friend was selling uh, New River Mountain Guides. And so I bought the business, and that's when I started my official career as a guide and uh, took my first courses through the AMGA. Awesome. And is that when you kind of decided that this was going to be your career mm-hmm. Yeah, for exactly. the foreseeable future? Exactly. You know, it's... Um, Moving to rural West Virginia, where there's not a whole lot of job opportunity, you kind of have to make the opportunity where it presents itself. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of perfect, perfect timing with the friend selling the guide service. And then, um, my, you know, my love of climbing and um, teaching that kind of mm-hmm. all kind of melded together at the time. Great. And so I wanted to talk to you specifically because in the current issue of climbing, there was an article called Freedom of the Hills. Question? Uh, question mark? I don't know exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to get that question mark in there by Alana Newman, mm-hmm. which your photos are featured in there. You were teaching, I believe, the first all-women SPI class mm-hmm. with our mutual friend, Tracy Martin. Yes. Who we both love and adore, I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, but back when you first were a guide, were you one of the only women in that guiding community? Were there other women that you were working with? You know, I read a fact out of here that only 10% of current AMGA guides are women, yet 30% of clients are female. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of wondering, you know, how that has changed or evolved over the years. It's definitely um, changed over the years. So when I first started guiding, I did not know of many other female guides, but they were certainly out there doing mm-hmm. it. We were just not really connected under one sort of community. Yeah. And now there's this huge push within the AMGA, you know, to be more diverse and more equitable and more inclusive to everybody. And uh, so that's been really great to see you know, guiding become a man's profession into just, you know, a, a profession where anybody, anybody who loves climbing um, mm-hmm. can share with others. And you know, there was one part in the article where uh, one of the clients, you know, said, like, call me daddy and like just was being totally sexist mm-hmm. and inappropriate. Is this something that you've had to deal with over the years as well? Um, I've had very few instances where um, that's occurred. You know, there's definitely been some times where, when I first bought New River Mountain Guides, my early you know stages as as a guide, quote unquote, my fingers, um, I would have men arrive and you know say, "Oh, you're my guide," and mm-hmm. just be kind of surprised that uh, you know a woman was going to take them out. And um, yeah, as I progressed in my career, it's happened less and less. So just because I think it's yeah. more common to see women in, in this profession. Yeah, absolutely. And full disclosure, you are actually my SPI instructor. Yes, I and was. I was super psyched. I mean, I just heard about your background. Like I had met you a couple mm-hmm. of times before then. And yeah, I don't think it's as much of a thing now, but obviously mm-hmm. there's still instances where people just don't have like a evolved understanding yeah (laughs) yeah it's changing for sure 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 Um, but i do have people seek me out women specifically Mm -hmm. um, because i want a female provider for the amga single pitch instructor curriculum so that's really cool to see the demand is out there yeah and as i mentioned before you actually were the instructor of the first ever all women class can you tell me a little bit about that class and Mm -hmm. how it was different from some of the other classes that you've taught in the past well, the, the biggest difference is it was all female, mm-hmm. um, and it was organized by uh, Shelma at Flash Foxy in co- cooperation with Brown Girls Climb, mm-hmm. and uh, with support of the American Alpine Club and the AMGA, and it was a pretty much a privately run course. 
Um, so it was not open to the general public, but we took applications um, sourced through those organizations. And um, women had to apply, you know, for for that course. And it was such a success. And it was really cool to see women from all these diverse backgrounds coming together to share their experiences and learn more about how they can become a professional climbing instructor so they mm-hmm. can then go out and affect more change within their communities. Yeah, great. And for all the women out there who do want to become a guide and go down that path that you've gone before, do you have any tips or advice for them? Absolutely. I I get that question a a bunch um, from ladies out there. I think um, women in general lack a little bit of self-confidence when it Uh comes to the technical skill set. But um, why I, do you think that is? Um, I think it's just the nature of being a female mm-hmm. um, is part of it. But I think we all have doubts about ourselves. We want to go into a situation being 100% prepared for something, mm-hmm. but it's kind of impossible. Sure. Um, that was for, actually mentioned in this article mm-hmm. that men just kind of want to jump in and yeah, pretend like they know exactly, exactly what they're supposed to do and be an expert. Yeah, they'll or, fake it till they make it. <laughs> yeah. You know, whereas women like, I want to be prepared so I don't, you know, make a, you know, mm-hmm. a fool out of myself in front of other people. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it is a course, you know, that's what I tell people. It's like a, it's a course. You're there to learn and you're going to make mistakes. Other people will make mistakes, but we're all going to be there to learn from it. And, um, you know, it's, it's okay to put yourself out there and, and that way you can really identify what your weaknesses really are because mm-hmm. um, they may not be anything what you think they are. Yeah. And more kind of just like nuts and bolts of being a guy, not specifically for females, but what are some of the tools that you've used over the years to be more successful and progress your career? Um, the biggest thing other than the, you know, seeking certification through the AMGA, Uh um, is the networking and you can get a lot of networking opportunities through attending the annual meetings of the AMGA Uh and then social media, of course, you know, putting, putting yourself out there. Like this, these are the things I'm doing. Wouldn't wouldn't you love to come climb with me in these cool places Uh and learn these cool things along the way? But, um, I would say, you know, having a professional certification and then networking as best you can, uh, within the community. And one thing that you do a lot is travel. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you get familiar with an area and feel comfortable guiding? That's one thing that I really struggled. I thought I knew Red Rocks when I started guiding. But then once you become the leader and are responsible for clients' safety, I mean, it's a whole other ball game. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, different weather, shade, sun, having a, a variety of different grades. What was the best way for you to familiarize yourself with different areas and really feel like you knew an area well enough to guide? effectively yeah really the best thing you can do is go and spend as much time as possible in that area i'm still learning red rock you know each each day Uh um, that i'm out there and i've been out working here full time for the last five and a half years Mm -hmm. and there's still tons of climbs on my to-do list and things (laughs) to do but um you know this that's an example of a pretty vast area so it can take a little bit longer to become comfortable with um, knowing your way around so smaller areas, it would come much, much quicker. But I also reach out to my guide friends in the community and say, hey, do you have any beta? Yeah. Do you have any routes that you recommend? I have a client who is coming, you know, mid-April, and I need a, you know, a 5.8, you know, five-pitch climb in the shade. You yeah. know, what do you recommend? So I'm always using um, my peers as, as a resource. And on the client side, what do you recommend a client kind of prepares themselves for? 
or comes to the table with before going climbing to make sure that they have the best time possible? Um, I would say being honest about uh, your ability was probably yeah. the, the biggest <laughs> thing. Um, we all, and it's just human nature to represent yeah. yourself in the best, you know, light as possible. And the best day of climbing ever, you know, I climbed mm-hmm. a 510, but you know, you don't hear the details that they hung their way up it. It was Especially on top rope. Or <laughs> at Red Rocks, because so many people, like Red Rocks has the best moderate multi-pitches. Mm-hmm. And everybody wants to do those classics, but yeah. I've been there with a client where they're like, oh yeah, I definitely climb 5'9". Mm-hmm. And two pitches in, they're like, I'm done. I'm like, well, we're yeah. not done. We got to get to right. the top. Right. <laughs> we can't bail now. <laughs> yeah, you're in this. You're in it to win it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just honest representation and realistic, you know, mm-hmm. what what the goal is for the day. And oftentimes, you know, you have to dial it down, you know, especially if they're more accustomed, clients are more accustomed to indoor type climbing. Yeah. You know, um, you're always kind of assessing where people's skills are and filling in the gaps and, and the cracks of that knowledge and then preparing them for bigger adventures. So mm-hmm. they keep coming back. Yeah. One thing I found is a lot of clients will book too short of a time mm-hmm. for what they want to accomplish. They're like, oh, I have a full day. I want to go sport climbing in the morning and do a multi-pitch. Right. And I'm like, well, if you really want to enjoy it, maybe you should do sport climbing one day and then... Mm-hmm get another day of climbing for, you know, one of the classic multi-pitches or something. Exactly. Um, And what has been one of the kind of the biggest challenges of being a guide throughout your guiding career? Uh, The biggest challenge these days is finding free time for myself to (laughs) actually go out and enjoy personal climbing. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's, that time is very precious and far and few between these days. And has guiding impacted your recreational time on the rock as far as like enjoying it as much oh yeah (laughs) yeah it's uh as you know working as a full-time climbing guide you're always out there and um you know you're climbing well within your abilities so you're never challenging yourself physically although the physical demand of guiding day in day out for weeks on end you know will take its toll and other you know repetitive use injuries like shoulders and elbows and things Uh like that um, can you still get motivated after like four or five days of climbing to go out on that sixth day and go out and climb for your own pleasure? I mean, do you want to just sit on the couch? That's... Man, I just want to sit on the couch. <laughs> you got to do laundry, go grocery yeah. shopping and do all the things, you know, all the emails that stack up. So it, it is hard to motivate, but, um, you know, I find time to get into the gym when I can, you know, mm-hmm. even if it's just for a couple hours, you know, after all the laundry and the emails are done to get a little bit of workout and stay in some sort of semblance of climbing shape for myself. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to get a story out of you. Do you have like a most memorable day of guiding or a most memorable adventure with a client that you could maybe share with us? Oh man, there's, there's been quite a few over the years, but, um, and I should take out the most cause I always put people yeah. on the spot with the most, just a memorable day. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. Memorable day. Um, you know, last summer I got the chance to go to Norway and climb in mm. Lofoten with a longtime client of mine. She's originally from there, but lives in Santa Cruz and, um, her name is Chris Macknick uh-huh. and uh, she is celebrating her 80th birthday. Wow. And to celebrate that, she decided to do, um, eight memorable climbs, uh-huh. um, around the world on rock and ice. 
And uh, really? one of the climbs that she chose was in Lofoten, Norway. Uh-huh. And so um, I went over there with another friend of ours who kind of served as an assistant to help Chris, you know, achieve this goal. And we spent two weeks over there just having the best time climbing all over this beautiful granite right That's out incredible. of the Arctic Ocean. Yeah. I mean, just to be able to go there and climb, but then also to share that experience mm-hmm. that is, you know one of those life tickless things for somebody. Yeah. It was really special. Really special. And did she hire you for the other climbs that were on that list? Yeah, we considered um, some others. And then unfortunately last summer we had the fires that were happening over in the Sierra. So we had to reschedule those. And she, you know, she wanted to complete all these climbs within her 80th birthday year. Mm -hmm. And um, so she opted to do some more ice climbs instead, which is really where her first love lies. And Uh so um, she worked with another guide friend, Emily Drinkwater, to do a couple of those other goals and donk lands as well. So... That is one incredible thing with guiding because you do form these relationships mm-hmm. with people and they continue to hire you year after year. You know, I was staying over at Tracy Martin's place and so many of her clients like stay at her house even mm-hmm. and stuff. It is really incredible that you can stay in touch and Absolutely. really be part of somebody's climbing um, evolution mm-hmm. and watch them grow as a climber or not. You know, yeah. just seeing them enjoy it is, I guess, the best part, not necessarily exactly if they're improving or declining or anything yeah. like that. I always use the analogy that I'm teaching my clients are like, you know, I'm teaching them how to fly and uh-huh. they're like these little fledglings that are in the nest <laughs> and you know, you give them the the skills and the experience yeah. to go out there and eventually fly on their own and you know, the whole goal is to help everybody be as independent as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I'm essentially working my way out of a job with every <laughs> every client I take out. <laughs> Now, would you say like an SPI class or an AMGA class would be relevant to somebody who didn't even want to guide? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Have you had clients I do. take the class yeah. just for educational purposes? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of um, folks that come to the course who just for their own personal edification want to you know round out their your safety skills or maybe mm-hmm. they want to take some friends out and you know feel more comfortable doing that. And so there is a you know segment of the population that definitely sign up for those reasons. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. If anybody wanted to contact you for guiding, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, They can reach me through Facebook or Instagram and, uh, or my personal email. I don't know if I want to put that out there, but maybe yeah. put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Okay, that's the show. I want to thank Matt Samet, James Lucas, and Elena Arenz for joining. Also want to thank our sponsor, Evolve. Make sure to check out The Rebel at REI or REI.com. Theme music was provided by Small Houses at smallhouses.band. And make sure to pick up your copy of the June-July Epic issue at a local newsstand or subscribe. And if you've not done so already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it. See you at the next base camp. <laughs>